most important thing that I can get across to people is that God is not just the creator, but he is the sustainer. The universe is being sustained, it operates because of God's continual presence and he's the one that's making it all work. Science is simply discovering parts of the how of how he does that, but these so-called physical laws we're discovering, not inventing, are merely describing the work of God. Welcome to this episode of Good Heavens, a podcast about the universe with Wayne and Dan. Here is your host, Daniel Ray. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 20, verses 25 through 28, quote, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not so among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. It has always been a fascination of mine that such words are spoken by the very one who created the stars with his fingers, as David ponders in Psalm 8. And as the same David declares in Psalm 33, quote, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts, end quote. And in one of the most often quoted psalms in the Bible, also from David, Psalm 19, quote, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge, end quote. As the Westminster Catechism says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And one of the ways we can do both is to recognize how the speech and language of both creation and scripture dovetail so wondrously. The heavens declare the glory of God, and so, of course, does his word. When we gaze upon the heavens and contemplate their beauty and magnificence, we are also contemplating many of God's invisible attributes. Creation becomes a treasure trove of metaphor and exegetical tools for helping us better understand and appreciate what God has revealed in his word. Just as his word is a treasure trove of exegetical tools and language for helping us better understand what God has revealed in creation. Creation and scripture are two books meant to be read together. On this episode of Good Heavens, we talk with Dr. David Bradstreet of Eastern University in Pennsylvania. 
David is both a student of God's Word and a student of the stars. He has studied the fascinating and complex wonders of binary star systems for over 40 years and still delights in learning more about them with refreshing childlike wonder. His scientific career as an astronomer is for him an act of worship, one that has led him to a deeper appreciation for who God is. So what are binary stars? We have only known about them for a little over two centuries. In a quick nutshell, binary stars are two stars that orbit one another, some of them even touching one another. Some binary stars actually take on a teardrop shape, and it is because of binary stars that astronomers are able to figure out the mass of stars in general. But binary stars aren't just limited to a pair. There are star systems of threes and fours as well. As the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans, the created order clearly displays God's invisible attributes. So come and see how the wonderful enigma of binary stars point us to the glory of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You don't have to be an expert astronomer to appreciate what Dr. Bradstreet has to share. As we begin our discussion, I ask Dr. B, why binary stars? Run with binary stars. Introduce to the world, Dr. Bradstreet, uh, what binary stars are and why they have fascinated you for so long. Uh, where do I begin? <laughs> Sorry, big question. <laughs> the, idea, the idea that there's so many binary stars, let me quickly go into why that probably is. Okay. When, when stars are being formed out of huge gas clouds, as those gas clouds collapse, they start to spin faster and faster because of the conservation of angular momentum. The same reason that uh, ice skaters will pull their arms in when they're spinning and they speed up. Right. As a gas cloud collapses and gets smaller, the mass distribution, as it gets closer to the axis of rotation, things start to speed up. Well, the problem with stars and collecting gas, you know, getting gas to collapse down into a star is like herding cats. <laughs> the gas does not want to come together. There are several mitigating factors, right? One of which being this greater speed. Mm. Really, with the the gas would like to just fly off into space. Yeah. So it seems that nature uh, has chosen that the, 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 the star bifurcates into two smaller clouds and forms two stars mm. that can survive, rather than one star spinning so fast that it literally runs itself apart. Mm. So we believe that that's why most stars uh, form in uh, pairs. And there are triple systems and quadruple systems and quintuple systems as well. But the, the vast majority are actually two stars that orbit each other. And so it's interesting, if you, if you really want to know anything about stars, like not just their names and their colors, but their masses, their shapes, um, their sizes, how does one actually do that? Mm. Well, if you want to measure our mass, we step on a bathroom scale. Okay, so right. we may or may not like to do that, but what are we actually <laughs> measuring when we do that? What we're measuring is the Earth's gravitational force between you and it. And so how could you measure your mass if the Earth wasn't there? You're, you're measuring a gravitational interaction between two bodies. To get the mass of a star, we've got the same problem. If you've got a single star all by itself, you can't get its mass. Hmm. 
But if you've got two orbiting each other and you watch carefully how they interact with each other, how far apart they are mm -hmm. and how long it takes for them to fall around each other, which is what we call an orbit, mm. we can determine their masses. And so it's as if God said, oh, I've got to give away for these humans to you know, figure out masses of stars because almost everything about a star depends on its mass and its uh -huh. composition. Yes, yes. So we've got all these astrophysical laboratories called binary stars, which allow us to measure directly how much mass these stars have. Wow. And there's no other way to get the mass of a star. Mm. But the fact that there's so many binaries, this has allowed us then to get very accurate masses. And the fact that when they're going around each other, if their orbit is tilted so that one blocks the other in an eclipse, we can then measure how they eclipse each other. And that tells us their shape, their sizes, in addition to their masses. So yeah, you, could, like, you, you start your chapter with, uh, with an eclipse, the story of probably the, well, the first eclipsing binary that was ever discovered, correct? Algol? Yes, yes Algol. Um, now, so this is what they call an eclipsing binary. It was discovered by uh, John Goodrick, who was deaf from birth. Uh, 1782, he noticed that Algol was dimming and brightening. And, and so what's going on there? Algol has a companion that, that circles it, right, in our line of sight. So, so yeah. this, there's one star being occulted uh, by another one. Uh, they, they pass around. And, and so from Earth's vantage point, what are we looking? Straight on at a star going in front of another star? Is that what Algol is? Pretty much. Pretty much. And, and Goodrick knew. They had known about variable stars this is not the first but this one was both periodic and rapid and he reasoned that it, for a periodic variation like this to take place so quickly mm. you know in a matter of hours yeah the only mechanism he could come up with is uh, two stars eclipsing each other and he was exactly right wow that's amazing amazing and, uh, the guy was 19 years old when he made that discovery Wow, and and this was not at a time where the well they did it. They, you know, the telescope came out in the late uh, early 1600s, and but by the time of the late 1700s, the, it wasn't like telescope technology was was super advanced. I mean, you're still looking through a limited limited eyepieces. So this was a and he something did it, he did it visually. He wasn't doing he, a telescope. So not even a telescope here. He's just because yeah, Algol is quite bright, and you can notice it's yeah. dimming fairly mm -hmm. readily because it's almost it dims almost a magnitude. Well, it's like exactly what happened. Now, Betelgeuse is not a binary star, but but everybody noticed the people that carefully observed Betelgeuse. You can see it on Orion, the constellation of Orion. Uh, people could definitely tell. I could tell that it had dimmed uh, over a, a period of time. I think it's gone to the the brightness. It had a dip in brightness of almost twenty five percent recently. But you could actually see that because Betelgeuse is normally brighter. But um, but this gets back to what we're saying. If you're paying attention to to the stars. Uh, you notice these things if you contemplate them, if you sit there and and, and consider them long term, uh, you make these discoveries. That's how Clyde Tumbaugh discovered Pluto by looking at plates very carefully at the Lowell Observatory. So, um, so we've got a uh, an eclipsing binary. What how what what are the kinds of binary stars? If you could break those down, if that's not too much of a rabbit trail for you, no, uh, so there are there are five or six basic types. And they primarily, it depends on how close the stars are to each other. If they're relatively far apart and go around each other in a matter of, say, days or weeks, we call mm -hmm. them de detached because they're not touching each other. 
and they're typically made of stars that are mostly spheres. As they get closer together, their mutual gravity uh, pulls and tugs on each other through what we call tidal gravitational forces. And they start to stretch each other out into ellipsoids. Hmm. As they get closer and closer, they start to distort even more so. And you can actually get stars so close that they're physically, literally touching each other, which we call over-contact binaries, which is my specialty. Wow. They're stars that uh, orbit each other in a matter of hours, not days. You know, our sun takes 25 days to rotate once. These stars are rotating and revolving around each other in a locked dance in a matter of hours, like six, seven, eight, ten hours. So they're really whipping around each other, and they have to, otherwise they'd coalesce fairly quickly. Wow, that's amazing. And so these these contact binaries, I I get a news feed on my iPad, and I saw the other day that – they had discovered or had seen, I don't know, through a telescope or, or how they did it, but they discovered a teardrop-shaped star. And I thought immediately about, uh, uh, I don't know, I didn't read the article in full, but I, I imagine it was something like a contact binary because when you have these, as you see in the book, you have uh, some wonderful drawings of how these things look like teardrops when they start touching each other. Is that correct? Yes, in fact, algols, one of the... Uh, uh, one of the components of algol is this teardrop shape. The, oh, wow. Yes. If you look at the picture of algol in the book, it is a teardrop shape. And again, that's from the tidal distortion of the gravity of its companion, coupled with its own gravity. It's filling what's called its inner Roche surface, inner Lagrangian surface, which is teardrop shape. Hmm. And the closer the stars get together, the more distorted they both are into these teardrop shapes. Okay. Okay. It's one of the funny things I say when I ask kids, uh, the young kids, when they come in the planetarium, which I often had before this plague hit us, uh. and I, I would say, well, what shape are stars? And of course, you know what they're going to say. They're, they have five points. <laughs> and then I, I, you know, I'm trying to get them to understand that most stars are mostly spherical. And I, I always, in the back of my mind, say, well, some stars have one point, but I don't want to say that because that would confuse them. <laughs> These teardrop stars indeed do have a point, and they come they come to a point, mm. and the gas at that point is actually free to escape through that point. Okay. And Algol is doing that. Algol is actually its companion. The pointy star is actually pushing gas through that point onto uh, the other star. So one star is uh, feeding, if you want yes. to look at it, feeding the other star. Yeah, it's called mass transfer, and that has affected very much that star that's now pointy shaped used to be the more massive star in the system. Mm. And now it has transferred much of its mass, the majority of its mass to its companion. So now the, after the transfer of the mass to the greater star, to the lesser star, uh, if I'm, if I've understood your chapter correctly, that star that has been giving itself to the other star dies, Right. Uh, well, it depends on your, your, not really. It's, it's, it's turned into what's called a subgiant. Okay. So it's aging. It's aging because it originally was more massive. It aged more quickly. It, it went into, it tried, it was trying to get into the red giant stage, but it got mm. constrained by the mutual gravitation. So it, that's why it transfers mass to its, its friend. Okay. Now the smaller star has now become the more massive star. They've completely switched. And it's wow. not that he's, it's not that he's dying. It's he's getting into old age. You know, it's kind of like saying that a, a person my age in my sixties is dying. I, it's true, but not really. I think I have some life left. 
Yeah, it's more like a, more like receiving an inheritance from grandpa. Yeah, yeah, it's a, that's a nice, I like that. That's a nice <laughs> way of looking at it. Well, it reminded me, and I know you didn't explicitly say this in your chapter so much, but, but it did remind me in a poetic sense of these binaries. Uh, one giving itself to another certainly has uh, uh, theological overtones of, of what Jesus is like in terms of how he gives us his weightiness, right? That he shares with us his righteousness. He gives that's us his, his peace, his truth, his love. I mean... I think the I think of the scripture that 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 God will provide. God will give you all things because He has freely given us Jesus, and so us little tiny stars are receiving the mass of of the Father Star, right? Of of the Son of Righteousness is giving us His mass. It's that's what your chapter reminded me of. So thank you for that. Well, yeah. it's an interesting it's an interesting thought because indeed, when when God looks at us, those who believe in Jesus, He doesn't see us; He sees the Son. That's right. And so, indeed, you know, the weightiness, so to speak, the, the, the big word nowadays, of course, is gravitas, which yeah. uh-huh. I think is quite funny. <laughs> God sees us with Jesus' gravitas because of our belief in him. Right. So he looks, he sees our little light, and he sees that his son has poured his light into us. And exactly we are, right. Yes. We receive his mass, and not to be in a Catholic sense, but we, <laughs> we receive the, the, the glory of God in Jesus. I mean, he literally transfers us uh, that mass. Now, this is, my other, this is my other poetic brain, and you can slap me down if I'm just being too crazy here, but I launched into a, uh, a research in, in Lagrange points between two orbiting objects, uh, largely in part to your chapter to know more about what I was talking about. But I was fascinated to find that between any two orbiting objects, like uh, Jupiter and the sun, or the Earth and the moon, and of course, binary stars, there are these five Lagrange points, uh, yeah. uh, where there is basically gravitational uh, equilibrium, if you will. There's, there's, there's either a, a, a... And one of the things that fascinated me about this is that the gravitational, the, the five points between the Earth and sun, for example, uh, at point, at Lagrange point two is where we've actually figured out we can put satellites and telescopes in orbit. Um, And it's like a little shelf where you can put stuff. Um, And maybe you were familiar with the Lagrange Society of the 1970s or 60s, where uh, at one of the Lagrange points between the sun and the earth, people wanted to colonize it because you could go out there and put something and it wouldn't go anywhere. So, so there's these five points that are, that are locked gravitational locking, if you will. I, I don't know if I'm explaining it well, but when you look at the diagram of Lagrange points, they they almost look like the shape geometrically. They almost form the shape of a cross. I was fascinated by that. It's true, it's true. You know, when they when they're launching the James Webb Telescope in uh, next year, hopefully, yes, yes, yeah, it, right, right. I'll believe it when I see it. But <laughs> March of 2021, they're launching this new space telescope. It will be orbiting. Um, the Lagrange point on the other side of the earth between the earth and the sun. Mm-hmm. And so my students are saying, well, how can you have something in a place where there's nothing? And it's kind of like, if you think of what center of mass is, mm-hmm. the, center, the center of mass is the balance point of a, of a body. So when you pick up a ladder, where do you pick it up? If you're picking up a ladder by yourself, you don't pick it up by the end you find the middle of it and the then middle rung. Yeah. And that right. middle rung is the center of mass of the balance point of that ladder. Otherwise you have to exert a ridiculous torque 
right. pick up the ladder at one end. <laughs> right. That's an so, excellent way to put it. So yeah. then I say, well, think about a donut. Think about a donut, uh, a normal donut, not a jelly donut. A donut that has a <laughs> hole in it. Yeah. Where is the center of mass of a donut? It's actually in the hole where mm-hmm. there is nothing. Mm. And so this is the case with these Lagrangian points. They're literally gravitational balance points. The easiest one to understand is the one directly between, say, the sun and the earth. Mm -hmm. That will be called the inner Lagrangian point. That's the place where the gravity of the two bodies exactly balances, but it's unstable. Mm -hmm. And so if you put if you put something at that point, all you have to do is look at it funny and it will go (laughs) one way or the other. Sneeze and you're going one way or the other. Yeah, exactly. yeah. As opposed to a, a a stable point, which is the L4 and L5 points, which make that triangular shape, the, that equilateral triangle, right? Two bodies, much like the Trojan asteroids with Jupiter. Yeah. So the so the Lagrange points uh, one and two are more like you're balancing a pencil on your finger. Exactly. Right. And Lagrange points four and five are more like uh, bowls of Rice Krispies, where the Rice Krispies aren't going anywhere; they're actually right. held out. Or, or hold the pencil by the other end and like a pendulum. Yes, exactly. And that, you know, eventually the pencil comes back down to the bottom. That's the stable equilibrium position. Right. And so these points were named after the, the famous French mathematician. Uh, I forgot his first name, but Lagrange. And uh, he predicted before there was uh, the ability to observe that there would be these points. And then we started observing points between Jupiter and the sun and discovered all of these asteroids at points four and five, just as Lagrange had predicted. Yes. Yes. So these points exist between stars. And uh, one of the main transfer points is Lagrange two, correct? Or one, one. That's where the gravitational mass is, is exchanged. Correct. Yes, exactly. So, uh, so we have, I think we got through, uh, I think you, you, you labeled a couple of, of different binaries. We, we had the, we got to the contacts, which were your specialty. Um, so you have a couple of, are there, can you see, uh, just for, just for our audience's sake, can you see, uh, you can't see these contacts from the ground. It, re, it requires special equipment. Is that correct? So you can't, if you think about it, when you look through a telescope at stars, you're not really seeing the disk of the star, you're seeing its light. They're too far away to actually see them. You know, the Hubble has been able to see stars like Betelgeuse because it's so huge. Um, But most stars, you cannot actually see the physical disk of the star. And so you might ask, well, then how do you know these stars look like bowling pins or whatever? Right, right. It's through studying the light that they emit and that is eclipsed the way it eclipses, you create mathematical models Based on Lagrange's equations, uh, you're actually making what are called Roche equipotentials. Roche was another French mathematician who came up with these equations. Uh, you're actually modeling the stars into that shape. And when you do it, you can, act, you can very precisely reproduce the light that the stars are, are giving off as well as how they eclipse, et cetera. And so that, but that's how we know that they're in that shape, both through the physics of it and the modeling of it. So that's that's another amazing aspect of our universe. Not only do we have a pretty good view of the rest of the cosmos, um, as Melissa Kane Travis mentions in our book, you have a, an amazing mathematical resonance between how is it that the mathematics of human beings would be so complementary useful to to these distant points of light and the rest of the universe for that matter? Why does our math 
work out to give us these this these vistas of the universe you know there's another phenomenal attestation that 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 this universe is created yeah i think again i think the answer to that is it's not our math it's not no it's not we've merely discovered one of the other languages of the creator right even the the secular physicist uh, i was watching him interview uh, an interview with Bill Craig, uh, William Lane Craig, who's in our book as well. Um, but uh, Dr. Roger Penrose believes that mathematics have their own. Uh, we didn't invent them, that they have their own. He's, he, Penrose is not a Christian, but he he believes in some kind of platonic realm that mathematics was would exist if we didn't. Um, he wouldn't go so far as to say it came from the mind of God, of course, but uh, I, I'm of the camp that we discovered math. Yeah, I agree. With, I agree with that. We are discovering math, much like we're discovering anything else in science. We're not creating it. We're discovering. Right. It. I like to tell people when I give my talks on the book, I said, you know, God gives out Nobel prizes just for discovering things. Exactly. <laughs> you know, remember what Kepler said in, in a letter. He said that I'm, I'm merely thinking God's thoughts after him. That's right. That's right. So tell us um, about your favorite binary pair if if there is such a one that you would have what is exciting about uh some of the most exciting binary pairs and why they fascinate you uh that's an unfair question it's like saying <laughs> tell, me, tell me about your favorite grandchild <laughs> i'm sorry we don't have to you don't have to if you don't want to I, you okay. know, I, there are so many there are so many interesting uh, objects and you know we're the I, again i i really like the uh, over contact systems that look like they're getting ready to coalesce into one star that's awesome. Yeah. Um, I put one of those into the book, uh, A.W. Ursa Majoris, where it looks like this tiny little tad pole of a star is attached to this much bigger companion. And eventually, in several million years, that, that will coalesce probably into a single star. And this is in the constellation, you said Ursa Majoris, so that's uh, the yeah. big bear. That's in the, uh, um, uh, that's actually, uh, uh, let's say, um, the big bear, the, the Ursa Major, the, the, the Big Dipper. That's what I'm trying to think of. Yes. yes. Uh, big Dipper is an asterism of Ursa Major. Uh, but that star is in the, the constellation of uh, the Big Bear. That's really cool. Yes. Yes. Um, so this actually, this actually, going back to, I know we mentioned in your book and you mentioned in your other book, Starstruck, the idea that uh, the, the, the scene in uh, the 1977 film Star Wars, Luke is on Tatooine and he's looking yes. at yes. sunset. Uh, that's really true. That's really true. There are now exoplanets that we know that orbit binary stars. Is that correct? That is correct. That's as fascinating. Long as, as long as they're far enough away from the stars, uh, they can, they're basically orbiting the center of mass of the binary system. Wow. So yes, that, the planets have been discovered around binaries. And that's a good thing since most stars are binaries. If, mm. binaries, if you couldn't have planetary orbits, you're knocking out a lot of potential. Mm. So, uh, yes, it, it's... Binary stars can, as long as the stars are far enough away, you get them in too close and you start to get really weird orbits, which are yeah. not very stable. Now, is there, is there, are there, are the, the, the in binary stars, are there, uh, is there a certain size range of these pair or can they be any size stars? Well, that's again, it, gravitationally speaking, they can be most any size, but it, if you want life there, you've got to have stars that are long lived enough for life to get going. Right, right. And you know, it's 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 a tricky it's a tricky thing. It's, let's just talk about M stars for example. If you if you are M stars are small cool red dwarfs. Right, on the on this we're talking about the oh be a fine guy and kiss me the yes. uh, 
speckle sequence. Yeah. Yeah. The O's are really hot and the M's are at the end of the very cool. Yes. Sequence. Like 3000 degrees. Yeah. So, but they're the, they are by far, by far the most plentiful of the stars. So the planets going around them, if you want to be in the zone where water can be a liquid, and that's what we assume you have to have to have life, uh, you've got to be pretty close to the star. Well, these M stars are flaring a lot. And so you can have some issues with life if you've got a star that's, you know, flaring, giving off radiation, which is deadly to life, uh, right. much more frequently than our sun does. So. You know, in order for the planet to be warm enough, it's going to be closer to the star, but that now you're asking for deadly radiation. You start to see it gets complicated. It's not impossible, uh, uh -huh. but it gets complicated. Well, and then when you get too close to a star, you get what they call tidal lock of the planet, right? The one face that of the is, planet. There's no axial rotation like we have on Earth. Yeah, and if the Earth didn't rotate, we'd have no life on it because it would be one, one side would be really, really hot. The other would be cold. And the conflict between the two, our weather systems would be make the Earth basically uninhabitable. I uh, I don't know if you've seen the recent episode of of Neil deGrasse Tyson in Cosmos. I watched episode two a couple of weeks ago, and they were suggesting a hypothetical situation far into the future where our sun becomes a red giant and makes one of the moons of Saturn habitable. <laughs> I just thought that was kind of a stretch. <laughs> given what we know about uh, of uh, what, what it's required for a, a planet to bear life and what kind of parent star we would need and what the mass of the earth, all of these things, it, it seems like there are so many factors that uh, go into how a planet would have to support life. And that begins really with its parent star. Um, yes, absolutely. But then you get into the mass, the luminosity, the density, uh, the distance, it's it's very difficult to to think that that all of the stuff that we experience here and appreciate and enjoy are are accidental. Yes, and you know if the star is too massive and too bright, it's not going to last very long. Right. Much like Hollywood stars that burn out so quickly because they're living so crazily. <laughs> exactly. Uh, stars, you know, stars that are are giving off prodigious amounts of energy, they don't last very long. So it's not going to be long enough for a planet to settle down and, and establish life. Yes, yes, yes. Well, that's that's it's a phenomenal, phenomenal aspect of our universe that that most people don't know anything about. And uh, if nothing else, I'm so grateful that you reminded us all that our sun is not a mediocre star. You've heard it here first from Dr. Bradstreet. Our sun is very special. Is there any possible way that our sun has some distant companion we're just unaware of? Would would, would we know that? It is certainly possible. I mean, it could have a it could have a, a brown dwarf or something way out there. In fact, there's you know there's some evidence that it might, hmm. um, but it, it, it you know that's far enough away. It goes around every 26 million years or something like that. It's, these are this is it, it comes and goes. These the beliefs they're they're actually looking for such an object because there is some gravitational evidence that it, we might have such a, a body going around the sun, uh, but and that's that's not sure. That's not for sure. But wouldn't that be interesting if our solar system was laying on an, a Lagrange point between our star and another one? <laughs> yeah, I doubt that that's the case. But uh, because if it was big enough to have that much gravitational influence, we'd be able to see it. You'd this notice it more. a relatively small body that's you know, radiating perhaps in the infrared, very hard to see. And, you know, probably a star wannabe rather than an actual star got it got it uh have you have you are you of the opinion that jupiter might have been a failed brown dwarf oh it is a failed brown dwarf oh it is 
but but by a factor of 40. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, and yeah, I mean, if you took, if so, brown dwarfs, not by 40, I'm, I'm thinking star. If you, mm. if, if Jupiter was a little more than twice as massive as it is, it would be a brown dwarf. Okay. Brown dwarfs range in mass between two Jupiter masses and 80 Jupiter masses. And if you can get 80 Jupiter masses together, then it would actually uh, ignite into a star. It would light. Okay. Yes. So, so Jupiter is a star wannabe, a brown dwarf almost. If, if you just doubled it, a little more than double its mass, it would have been what we call a brown dwarf. You say, what in the world's the difference? If you put enough gas together up to a certain point, the body keeps getting bigger and bigger. But if you go a little over two Jupiter masses, that actually the weight of the gas starts to contract it. And that's when we officially call it a brown dwarf. It's when you start adding mass and it starts to get smaller, not bigger. In terms of size, it gets denser. Okay. All right. I have another question about a star that, that made headlines uh, not too long ago uh, called KIC 8462852. And uh, it kind of made popular headlines in that uh, there seemed to be something interrupting its light output that nobody could explain. Have you heard about the star or do you have any idea of what this is? This is the one where they were contemplating some kind of alien structure. Yes, the light. Dyson spheres and all of this stuff. Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, it made a TED talk and, and people were, people found it on an online database of all the Kepler stars that they had been observing. And uh, the scientific community took notice of it. And there's these tremendous enigmatic dips in this star's brightness that are not consistent. Nobody can explain. And so they came up with alien theories and all of this stuff. Have you been following that or do you have any insight into that mystery? Not a great deal. It, it reminds me of the uh, alien light, lighthouses theory that was put forward to explain pulsars. Oh. When pulsars were first discovered uh, through radio means, they give off these pulses at extremely, extremely precise intervals. Mm. like accurate to billionths of a second, these pulses. And so at that time, no one knew what it could be. Uh, and the, so one of, the, one of the theories was that these were alien lighthouses to warn space travelers away from the supernova remnants uh, from which these, these pulsars seem to emanate. Mm. And of course, now we know that these, it's not alien lighthouses, it's, <laughs> it's uh rapidly rotating neutron stars oh. so that i just you know i'm i'm pretty much 100 percent sure that this object is is just some kind of uh some kind of eclipsing something there's some something that's going around it that's causing this light variation i uh, i had thought i had made the suggestion that what we're seeing are are uh maybe the the dust of the lagrange point that go past it from we're in the line of sight between that but i don't know enough science to be able to prove that i don't you know i'm sure i'm sure that we'll figure it out eventually i'm yes i'm i i love science fiction i love star wars and star trek as, as much as the next person but i also try to be objective and absolutely you know, i i'll believe in alien life forms when they come down you know on the white house lawn and say you know where's burger king <laughs> <laughs> and then I would ask them how they know what Burger King is all about, you know? Yeah, it's, um, uh, it's, I, I'll believe it when I see the proof. Yeah. Well, I want to I wanna just thank you so much for your time, Dr. B. And uh, I want to read, uh, conclude with something from uh, your chapter in the story of the cosmos. Uh, you say, is it not mind-blowing that what an incredibly diverse and imaginative God we serve? God declares in Isaiah 45, 12, quote, it is I who made the earth 
and created man upon it. I stretched out the heavens with my hands and I ordained all their host. And it is Jesus, according to Hebrews 1, 2, and 3, who has not only created but sustains every part of the universe. The many varieties of stars exist both to bring him glory and to also instruct us toward understanding some of the mysteries of his creation. Though we are far from understanding all of God's laws, ordinances, as he challenges Job in Job 38, 33, through his grace we can begin to catch a glimpse of the magnificence of them. And I think that's fantastic. Uh, uh, uh. So closing thoughts about God and the majesty and the glory of the universe, sir. Yeah, and I think I'm glad you brought that up because I think the most important thing that I can get across to people is that God is not just the creator, but he is the sustainer. Hmm. And this is a concept that is really messed up an awful lot of people and cultures that it, it's a deistic idea that yes. God created the universe and then he just let it run on its own, this perfect machine. He's in the Bahamas somewhere reading a newspaper, <laughs> not interacting with his universe at all. It's yes. uh, a completely impersonal God. I mean, this is what deism believes. Yeah. And that's not what scripture says at all. That no. The universe is being sustained. It operates because of God's continual presence. And he's the one that's making it all work. Mm -hmm. And science is simply discovering parts of the how of how he does that, that these so-called physical laws we're discovering, not inventing, yes. are merely describing that's right. the work of God. As Jesus said when he was, he was always getting in trouble doing stuff on the Sabbath. <laughs> and he, and he, said, he said to the people, you know, my father is always working and so am I. And so this is a, a you know, God is always, the, if you get rid of God, if you remember in the 60s, or maybe you weren't around in the 60s, but I was. And I, I was born in 1968. So the Time Magazine cover that came out just before you were born, at Easter, of course, that's, that, that it was big red letters that said, is God dead? And so if you got rid of God, the universe would cease to exist. There'd be no time or space or anything. There'd be literally nothingness, the void, that you cannot have a universe without God the universe does not run on its own, according to scripture. And scientists were just discovering some of the ways that God's uh, reliability, that what we call natural laws, this is how things are being run. Mm. But there's so much we don't know, Daniel. For example, what in the world is electric charge? What is it about the electron or the proton that it has this thing we call charge? And, and the answer is, no one knows. <laughs> We, we talk about these things as if we have it all down, but in reality, they're names for characteristics that we don't understand right. at all. Placeholders for mysteries. I mean, people no, talk about yes. dark matter and dark energy, but I think, well, describe to me what a force is. You ask, like, what's a force? You know, is it, is it a, it's a nebulous concept for something we observe but can't explain, finally, really. I mean, we, we might have a mathematical representation of the force, but these are descriptions for something far greater and far deeper. Um, Michael and I just had a, a chat about this, and, and we were talking about this very thing that we can't observe reality as it is, because if we did, we would be God. We are, reserve, we are observing a part of God's creation in a way with our finite minds and intellects, but we don't see the whole picture. Uh, we no, we're, like, we're like one-year-olds. Exactly. 
coloring in things with crayons and thinking this is perfection. That's right. That our models, we, there's this, I'm sure you know this, you've been in the discipline of science for so long. The, the, the models actually become what people actually think is, is actual reality. Uh, but, you know, some of the more wiser scientists realize it's just, just models. But our model building is just, as you say, it's a, a two-dimensional trying to stay in the lines with our crayons and, and hey, look, here's a picture of reality. Here, and God's just kind of, you know, changing yeah. our paradigm, constantly changing our paradigms. Yes, it's just, um, that's, that's what the Ptolemaic system became. Yeah. That started out as a model and, you know, by medieval times had become reality. Right. And uh, uh, I think it was it was Lewis and, and both Lewis, C.S. Lewis and Werner Heisenberger were, were both and they were contemporaries of each other in the 1950s, 60s. And uh, but Heisenberg was 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 trying to he wrote a book called Physics and Philosophy, where he's he's saying, look, the, the, the quantum physics that we have been discovering, there's no language sufficient to describe what we're, what we're looking for here, we're, what we're trying to describe. We, we can't put it. In, what kind of words do you use to describe these things? And so here we are struggling with trying to conceive uh, of the magnificence and the beauty uh, of, of the cosmos. And, and so many people strive to do this without any thought given toward who Jesus is or who God is or that God has made any of these things. And so I think you, you advance in discovery by taking into account the creator. That's how science got started, that these men who made these discoveries, these paradigm-shifting discoveries, were people who, who acknowledged Jesus. My goal is simply to open the eyes of people I come into that they could better appreciate and give glory to God. Well, and I, 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 from what you've told me and from what I've read uh, of your work, I think you're doing just that. And I appreciate you uh, uh, for your contribution uh, to the book and to being so gracious with me over the, the last couple of years working on the book. And uh, you have, uh, so you have, talk about what you've got out there that people could could find out more about what you do. Uh, talk about uh, a little bit about how people can find out more about astronomy and get some tips and stuff and, and wrap up with uh, tips for how people can uh, get more interested in, in, in this discipline and, and, uh, and find out more about uh, the universe. Well, they can, if they're interested, they could uh, pick up my book, Starstruck, mm -hmm. still available on Amazon. Of course, they can read our book, right? The Story of the Cosmos. Absolutely. I think is a, I really do think, I mean, I'm prejudiced, but I think it's a phenomenal book. Uh, it's very meaty and uh, the authors of it, maybe except for me, are really, <laughs> really quite, quite excellent. Uh, it's really an amazing book. It's not the kind of book, Starstruck is, is made to read as if we were sitting down in front of a fireplace talking like you and I are doing now. Yeah. Uh, the story of the cosmos book is much more weighty in terms of thought in my own opinion that you really it's it's a book that you really uh it's meaty very meaty well we tried to paul and i both tried to uh it's amazing to us both paul and i because we never sat down as a team all of us as as writers and said well here's how we're going to do it we just gave each writer a said we're going to talk about the glory of god whatever you want to do with it go with it and it's amazing to us how the essays fit together, like we were collaborating the whole time. Um, I, I agree. And if they want to check out more about uh, what I'm doing, they can, I have a website. Uh, it's euastronomy.com. Mm -hmm. so the letter E and U stands for Eastern University, euastronomy.com. And you can find out more of uh, what I do. Um, and you also have um, designed 
shows for planetariums. Do you know some of the planetariums where your star show is, is on display? Um, well, I write the curriculum for uh, the planetarium company called Spitz, which is uh, headquartered in Chadsford, Pennsylvania, just outside of Philadelphia. Okay. And I've, I've written now four volumes of uh, planetarium curriculum for their digital planetarium, and that's being used in all Spitz side-owned planetariums across, uh, mostly across the country, but also internationally. Wow. Fantastic. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. David Bradstreet, for having this nice morning chat with you. I appreciate it. I hope you continue to bear up well in this, uh, in this time and, uh, you know, continue to inspire and encourage people even in, during this time. And I think this is a wonderful time, an opportunity, though it may be difficult for a lot of us, a time, a time out to be able to contemplate and consider what is most important. And that is the glory of God in Christ. And I hope and pray that uh, you continue to be a messenger uh, for that, for your students and uh, for those that you reach. So thank you, Dr. Bradstreet, for taking the time with me today and for being on Good Heavens. We will be in touch. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for you taking the time um, and having this discussion. This to me is uh, an ideal way to exchange ideas and and hopefully people listening in will be just as interested in these uh, subjects as you and I are. Absolutely. Uh, But again, thank you so much for your time. Blessings to you as you stargaze and think of Jesus. Thank you, Daniel. Same to you. Isaiah 40, 26 exhorts us to lift up our eyes on high and consider who made the stars. The creator of the innumerable celestial host is the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah tells us that the Lord numbers all the stars and calls each one by name. If the Lord of the universe knows the name and the number of the stars, be encouraged. He too knows where you are. This is Good Heavens, a podcast about the human side of the universe and how a deeper appreciation for the heavens can encourage and strengthen your faith in Christ. Good Heavens is a production of Watchman Fellowship Incorporated, Arlington, Texas. For more information on this podcast or any of the other apologetic resources from Watchman Fellowship, visit watchman.org today. Be sure to check out the story of the cosmos, how the heavens declare the glory of God, with chapters written by both Wayne and Dan. It is a comprehensive down-to-earth Christian defense of the cosmos, featuring essays on how the heavens have influenced science, art, philosophy, history, and theology. The Story of the Cosmos is a wonderful addition to any bookshelf or coffee table. Filled with stunning images of the heavens, high-quality gloss paper, and in-depth essays, it can be a great gift for friends, family, and non-believers interested in the intersection of science, culture, and faith. Thanks for listening to this episode of Good Heavens. I'm Dave Mitchell.